It's Left of Baseball with Adrian Burgos, Craig Calcaterra, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. Welcome back to Left of Baseball. This is Lincoln Mitchell. We have a very special episode today. We have a very special guest who was one of our core team. Adrian Burgos Jr. is fresh back from his yeoman's work on the early days committee and the golden days era of baseball committee, which is a, a caucus that meets to discuss who gets into the Hall of Fame from these groups. So a very, very important role in really setting and, and determining baseball history. And Adrian was a part of that. So we're really looking forward to chatting with him, learning about the process, his views. And, and we, we hear from our back channels the, the instrumental role he played, not only in getting uh, Gil Hodges into the Hall of Fame, but in almost getting Boog Powell, who wasn't even on any ballots into the Hall of Fame. So Adrian, just to start, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what the process was, what it was like. We obviously, there's some things you can't talk about, so let's keep it all kosher, but very much love to hear as much about your experience as you can tell us. Yeah, it was an honor to serve on this committee. It's a room I had never really envisioned myself being invited. Um, So the cool thing is I got a call from the president of the Hall of Fame. And no, I wasn't going into, I wasn't elected, but I was selected to serve on this committee, uh, partly as a, for the work as a historian. We're looking at the the glory days era, the 50s and 60s, um, players who made their biggest impact, executives who made their biggest impact during that time. Um, And then with the early days, it was the first time since 2006 that we really had Negro League candidates under consideration. So um, that was a great opportunity and really interesting rooms to work with, you know, in terms of who's on these committees. They went through um, the people on the ballot themselves went to this two tiered process of their name being put up for consideration. Then we had them paired down to 10 candidates per ballot. And the balloting process is perhaps, I think, what Craig is most interested in. And then also our voting specialist, Tova, would be very interested in knowing. Let me let me ask you, and and I'm going to, I think I know the answer to this, but just to sort of for, for listeners who don't know this full process, in the beginning, uh, there was the Veterans Committee. And the Veterans Committee was sort of like the, you know, the make-do, the people who who got overlooked. Let's take a second look at Hall of Fame candidates who the Baseball Writers Association of America didn't vote in. And the Veterans Committee got a very, very, very bad reputation in the 1960s through the 1970s because it was a, it was a function of cronyism. Frankie Frisch, uh, himself a Hall of Famer, uh, basically used the Veterans Committee as a means of getting all of his old drinking buddies elected to the Hall of Fame. If there is a questionable Hall of Famer from the 1920s through the 1950s or so, it was because Frankie Frisch liked him, liked the cut of his jib, and they all got together in Cooperstown or wherever they met, had some beers and said, yeah, he's a hell of a guy. We're going to let him in. And then there have been various means of correcting that over the years. And initially, they went too far in the other direction to correct that. And the, the, the reconstituted Veterans Committee hardly ever inducted anyone. It was ridiculous. And then a few years ago, they broke it up into this heiress committee that you're on. And it sounds to me like what you're saying. And, and I will say as a, a baseball writer myself, someone who has been critical of the Hall of Fame process uh, myself, we have always viewed the veterans committees, the older versions of them, as very problematic in certain ways, very secretive and opaque. Uh, you know, Tony La Russa goes into a room and maybe he's the next Frankie Frisch and he's getting his buddies inducted, things like that. But what it sounds to me like is this was actually a great process that that went through things sort of 
well. Am I right about that? Could that possibly be the case? I think we have a different process for sure, Craig. And I think that's one of the important changes in the evolution of the veterans committees to these era committees. Instead of having like the entirety of baseball history, players, executives, and, and contributors all put in together in one big lump sum where it's really hard to decide or really easy, as you're noting in the case of Frankie Fresh. If I like you, you're in. And I'll get everybody else to kind of... Um, so for this process, we had a ballot committee. I served on the ballot committee for the early days, um, and we had a bunch of Negro League players uh, under consideration, which we paired to 10. And there was another group that looked at um, MLB players and contributors and paired that to 10. So we had 20 people that we had to get compressed into a 10 uh, ballot, 10 candidate ballot. There were no Hall of Famers, though, in terms of uh, – elected members of the Hall of Fame who served on those committees. And I think that's an interesting safeguard of trying to um, prevent influence on who gets onto the ballot by, let me get my friend onto the ballot. We had uh, sports writers, statisticians, historians. I think the other really interesting thing that, you know, this I think began under Jeff Idelson when he was the Hall of Fame president and Josh Rowich, the current, um, Hall of Fame president and have been very thoughtful about is we should have historians, experts of a different ilk come in to weigh in on these things because how does one truly understand the impact of a mini Minoso as an integration pioneer when you didn't see him play? Well, maybe the people who have studied that era should be part of the conversation, both in ballot construction and then in voting. And I'm guessing that is that's why you got the call, right? They they when 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 Josh Rowich called you, was it you know that this is more than anybody, we want you on this committee. You have an important voice and a different perspective that we can use on this committee, uh, was how uh, Josh pitched it to me. And also I should mention that Leslie Heafy, another professor, a Sabre member. Uh, who's done a lot of work on women in baseball, on Negro League baseball. She, too, uh, served on the early days committee. And for many of the same reasons about, you know, you have an expertise that we really could use in that room. But it also is striking to me from an elections perspective that it's not an election at all. Once you once you know who's it's, – it's a caucus. I mean, it's it's bringing some people together and, and with, with both a, a bounded number of candidates but also – you know, you leave Adrian off the committee and you might, and that's a way of saying we don't want Minoso in. It is a, a certain kind of election. We'll, we'll turn to the voting specialist next. I was going to ask you, so so there's a ballot committee. There were two ballot committees where you picked 10 each, right? And then you had to narrow it down to 10. I mean, how, how did, what was the criteria for that original group? So the the for the Negro League committee, um, the criteria were, you know, finding individuals we looked at individuals who had been part of the 2006 deliberations, um, who had been finalists um, on or semifinalists. There was a list of 39 uh, from which uh, John Donaldson, for example, had previously been on. And so that was part of the groups. We also had a conversation. Who are some historical figures from black baseball who were not part of that 2006? We had as a Negro League committee and a community of historians, we had heard from the Hall of Fame 
uh, Jeff Idelson has said, if we ever get more research, more data on these players, we would consider the uh, Negro League candidates once more. And Gary Ashwell and Scott Simkis and a number of others have done amazing work in getting us more data, uh, more, more statistical finds. And we have a different picture in terms of the statistics of the Negro Leagues in 2021 than we had in 2006. So that was really useful in our deliberations. Of like, how do we assess? We have literally some players went from having a losing record out of a pitcher, like say out of 50 decisions. Now we have over 200 decisions from league games and, you know, their, their winning percentages way over 550. So like, like those things matter in terms of like, how do we bring the lore of the stories of the Negro leagues with, actual you know box scores and put those things together so that was key in in deliberating and then the really hard part was how do we bring the stories of uh 19th century baseball players that played in the national league in you know put them side by side and you know against someone like bud fowler or against you know a negro league star like dick redding and build that ballot and so there was a lot of discussions and there was um we, we we voted in numerous instances of like how to how to build that ballot and, and get that there on the ballot construction there there was more possibility of multiple votes but when it came to the the ten of um, the actual election committee um, there's one vote and man I was so nervous so nervous when. We're brought into a room before Josh Rowich goes out to talk to the uh, MLB network. And we're, they, they share the, the results with us. And I'm like, did, you know, did, did many get more than 11? Did he get more than 11? I, I'm, I don't know. I don't know. And so when I hear that result, I was just ecstatic. Um, and, but yeah, that was just one vote. We, we did not caucus. T- and, and say, oh, I think this person has 10. Let's try to switch off that vote with this vote. You know, that didn't happen. There was, so there was voting in the process of constructing the ballot also. So you had some big pool of people that, of names that people had thrown out there. And then you had different rounds of voting about who would end up even just on the ballot. Yeah. Like we, we saw, you know, there was a, you know, you, there's the vote, which 10 do you think belong? And they tally that in a reverse point type system and who made it, who missed a cutoff. Well, these group are really close. Let's sit down and really think through and discuss, and then we'll revote about what the rest of the ballot. That was in the construction of the ballot. But right. um, when it came to what's announced on that Sunday, um, and for me, like what was – I was a part of a small group that actually served on both eras um, committees. So uh, Ozzy Smith and and Burt Blylevin, uh, Joe Torrey, John Shorholtz, like they, my plus myself and a couple more, like we served on both. And it was one set of discussions in the morning and lunch and then boom, right into the next group. And it was exhausting because <laughs> really, you know, the only break was lunch and you know, I really didn't want to think much during lunch because my brain was kind of fried. We did the glory days ballot first, and then we went to the early baseball. Um, and, you know, I, I for one, I'm not going to go up to Joe Torrey uh, and, and ask him, like, you know, what are you thinking about these individuals? Who are you going to vote for? Because 
I'm too much of a fanboy. I have a question about that though, because and there's a couple things here. First, um, there is there has always been this sense, and in earlier versions of the Veterans Committees, there was a, this was a fact that that there was sort of animated debate about whether so and so is getting in or not. Argument. Uh, you know, stumping for for this guy, stumping for that guy. And I'm not talking about the Frankie Fish stuff. I'm talking about even a few years ago, um, particularly with more modern candidates, because there are guys who knew them in the room. Joe Torre and and Tony Larusa and whoever and Hall of Famers are in the room. Ozzie Smith has has been reported to be a very vocal person in that room about who maybe should be and who should not be. And I guess when it comes to the early baseball stuff, there's no one who could do that because everybody's dead. Um, but, I, you know, there and, and I'm asking, I, I, I talked to you offline and you, you, you mentioned this, but uh, there is this sense out there that a guy that didn't make it, who fell one short, vote short, Dick Allen, many times in the past uh, didn't make it because people didn't like him. And there were still people who were alive who didn't like Dick Allen. Um, and then he falls one vote short now. So there are a lot of people who got that result last week. And their view is, oh, well, Dick Allen got shafted again. And, and I'd like to hear that, Adrian, in the context of Gil Hodges getting in, who who everyone agrees, I guess, is, is, a, is a very nice guy and, you know, almost had a 500 record as a manager in addition to being a pretty good first baseman for a long time. But in no universe is is Gil Hodge is a better baseball player than Dick Allen. That that's a proposition that 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 doesn't that can't be taken seriously at all. So, did that help Hodges his reputation in that way? I mean, how did that that work? Yeah. So it, it's an interesting set of questions because if it was a straight up and down vote on each candidate, I think you know there would be different results. We're not voting, and I, I've mentioned this uh, elsewhere as well that we're not saying there were only four Hall of Famers on that ballot. We had to rank who we, each of us, the 16, had to rank who we thought were the four most worthy off of that ballot to be, uh, to be elected. And each of us are like weighing that in different ways. You know, Jaime Hadin weighs it a di- different way than, than Ozzy Smith and then and, and Ken Kendrick. You know, and so... You know, each of us 16 have to kind of put that together. Um, and yes, we have intense discussions and deliberations. And what's interesting is the different perspectives that you do hear um, from ball players and then managers and executives' insights. And then what was the sports writers. And in this, on this day, a couple of historians as well. Um, John Thorne, another historian, uh, the official historian of MLB, was also on the early days ballot. And, you know, he, he does fantastic work. Um, and, you know, we're able to provide a historical context. What, what to me was astounding was if you look at statistical probabilities, we're actually just one vote away from elected five people on one. That's the problem. Yes. It's, it's, it's the way that the the, uh, voting structure is created. If we had five out of 10 that we could vote for Dick Allen's in, I I, I mean, I think that's really the case. And if you don't have a, a, 
a limit of 10 on the regular ballots for so long a lot of players are in, right? I mean, it's a strange, it's a strange setup across the board. And, and I think part of that is maintaining the sense of like, you know, only the very elite percentage of 1% will ever be elected. And, and that voting structure really limits the possibilities of how people get in. Can I ask about this? Because this goes back to the early days thing you were talking about a minute ago. There's this long-standing idea of the Baseball Hall of Fame of we're exclusive. We're exclusive in ways that the other Hall of Fames aren't. We are only the best of the best. And then there are, of course, sub-arguments among fans about small hall, big hall, all that kind of stuff. And the the response given from either Major League Baseball, the Hall of Fame, or the baseball writers, whenever they are asked about why is it so hard to get in, why, why are you doing it this way, it's, well, we want to keep it exclusive. That's why we have a 10-vote limit. That's why guys can only stay on the ballot for 10 or 15 years. That's why this, that's why that. So going back to the early days thing, there's definitely a sense now that guys were missed or guys were overlooked. And that's why you bring in historians. That's why you bring in Professor Burgos. That's why you bring in all these people. Did you either implicitly or explicitly get sort of marching orders or suggestions or opening remarks from anyone involved in the Hall of Fame about we are here to sort of add people or we are here to be more expansive or we are here to over uh, to to correct past oversights or was it the same sort of we're just voting again was there a sense of we're trying to fix past wrongs especially with the early days or was it a we're continuing on with our our exclusive vote yeah that's a good question because two things stick out in my mind and that is all of these individuals and this is one of the messages we did receive all of these individuals deserve reconsideration, uh, consideration, you know, that we kept hearing consideration a number of times, but we also heard that the purpose of your being in this room is that it's not that you must elect anyone. You must kind of deliberate, consider, and then cast your vote, but you don't have to elect anybody. Um, so it, it's always, well, for me in 2006, we had a similar um, experience with the Negro League special election where we're told, yeah, you do not have to um, elect anyone. Um, and we elected 17. What was different in 2006, it was an up and down vote on each candidate. And so there, that's, and we see the result. 17 out of 39 were elected uh, based on an up or down vote. Um and, but that was also because outside of the initial veterans committees, no Negro League candidate had really been considered. So Buck O'Neill. I was just going to go is, there. Was, was, yeah, Buck O'Neill was considered maybe one of the bigger oversights first initially and then in the 2006 process to the point where it's pretty very it's pretty obvious that the Hall of Fame has done make goods over the years. I mean, they put a statute over the guy. He's had his own thing. I mean. Everyone involved who is not a complete Cretan, and even the Cretans are quiet about this, has said that Buck O'Neill was overlooked. So, of course, he gets in now. Um, there was no suggestion or, or even nudging a little bit of like, you guys better get Buck O'Neill in this time. Yeah. And so what was interesting and allowed for a different kind of consideration of particularly of Negro League candidates was, in fact, that MLB 
at long last recognized that the Negro Leagues were what the ball players and the executives of the Negro League Baseball always knew. They were major league. So that opened up for everyone in that room. I'm pretty certain Frankie Fritsch did not consider Negro Leagues major league. You know, and there are a lot of others who who were in that that camp. So this was the first moment in 2021 when an entire committee was like sitting together, whatever they achieved in the Negro Leagues, treat it just like he was your teammate on an MLB team. That changes things pretty, pretty dramatically. And also, if you're looking at the early days, you know, when the Negro Leagues, by definition, we're talking about, you know, we're not talking about 1960, right? We're talking about the early days. Most teams you know, the St. Louis Browns for much of that period were not in any meaningful sense a major league team, right? So so the notion of major league is is a fluid concept. And and that seems to me to be that if you're going to specifically to your point, if you're going to consider players from nineteen twenty in the American League and the National League as major league, then you have to consider Negro League players, right? That's that's the comparison you're making. And there it's a very to me a very easy comparison to make. You're not comparing to, you know, nineteen ninety eight or something. Yeah, this is really for these early ballots and early committees eras. And this is what aided the case of a Mini Minoso, because those three years he had played in the Negro Leagues are now treated just like when he was with the Chicago White Sox. And when one of the fascinating things that happens with many stats is when you bring in all the Negro League stats that we have documented, his batting average went from 299 to 299. In other words, his performance against Negro League pitching was exactly the same as his performance against Major League MLB pitching. And that like really lets people know like the competition basically was on par. It, it's the, the same thing. So Minoso's American League so, so I want a couple of questions because I think he's the, for many of us, the most interesting uh, guy who got in. The members were very happy to see him get in. But there's a couple of things that strike me when you when you consider his three years in the Negro Leagues. Then he clearly has the kind of American League stats that kind of push him over from a borderline to a strong case. On the other hand, there's also a lot more to his story and yeah. a lot more to his story of of getting into the Hall of Fame than just what he did on the field. So I have two questions related to this. One was is that in general, how much of the kind of other than Statisticals, statistics, pardon me, and numbers piece of this was in considering perhaps what you might call overall contributions to the game. And then secondly, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of this, but how much were Gil Hodges's numbers improved by his years in the Negro Leagues? And oh, never mind. Or his story. Or his story. I mean, was there a point where they said we 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 need to give some to the old white guys from New York because they're underrepresented? <laughs> it was amazing to me. So yeah, the result came in and when they announced that uh, also with 12 votes was Gil Hodges, um, yeah, there were certain people who were very excited in the room about this. And I we I had no idea. I did not know till after the MLB Network announcement um, that Gil Hodges' widow is actually still alive. She's like 95 years old and still living in the house. Like, so some people had asked me off the, you know, offline, like, so did you guys like decide to give him a vote because his wife's still around, his widow's still around? It's like, I mean, I had no idea. You know, Gil has been gone for so long. He's been dead for so long. Like, 
uh, my assumption was, yeah, it's probably his his widow is probably dead too, but no, she's still alive, and it, it actually makes it a feel good story for some. Um, and you know, now going back to Mignoso, um, you know, having historians on a committee such as this allows for understanding the the, the setting, the context, and you know, being able to talk about a fellow Hall of Famer like Orlando Sapita calling him our ja- uh, Jackie Robinson and and that giving a context for why that is so, you know, reminding them Orlando Sapita grew up in Puerto Rico with the father who's a superstar baseball player who would host Josh Gibson, San, um, uh, Satchel Page, and other greats of the Negro Leagues for barbecues in their backyard. So when he calls him our Jackie Robinson, it's not like – I don't know what was going on in the Negro Leagues. His dad decided never to play in the United States because of Jim Crow. He understands fully what it means to have this black Latino superstar emerge out of the 49 and 50 and 51 and, and you know become a star with the, uh, the Chicago White Sox. And yeah, this is where I, I, I noted to a friend um, that it's so interesting to be in that room in Orlando and leave the room feeling like, wow, the people in this room were um, listening to me more intently than when I lecture in the hall here at the U of I. They were paying attention. wondering so i don't think it's any secret and it's just i mean even just from our present conversation how you feel about Minnie minoso and so i'm wondering if were, were there people making the case were there sort of you know rep, people representing different candidates and, and making speeches of some kind or, or or things like that every name comes up and someone decides you know no one's designated to make the case um but people speak up and they make the case. They come prepared. Um, there was one particular individual who had, we're, we're provided binders full of candidates, very different than Mitt Romney's binder full of women. Um, and, you know, I saw people, things dog-eared, highlighted, circled. And uh, one particular individual I, I uh, joked around with before we started uh, our discussions, like, you look like one of my students before final exam. And person nodded their head and smiled. And it's like, I've been studying quite a bit. <laughs> I kind of feel like it. That's good. I mean, you know, for all the flaws in the voting system that you used, of which, I mean, if you're, it depends on what you're analyzing them against, but you had a very educated electorate. So, and you had, you know, a pretty represent, I mean, I guess it was a representative electorate. I don't know how you would gauge whether it was a representative electorate, but it was a lot more representative than it has been in the past, at least. It was probably the most diverse committee. When you think about, particularly the glory days, um, you had three Latinos, Al Avila, the, uh, the general manager of the, of the Tigers, Jaime Harin, the longtime voice of Los Doyers, and myself. You had um, Kim Ang, Asian-American woman. Um, you had Tony Regans, uh, African-American, former GM. Uh, you had Ferguson Jenkins, Ozzy Smith. Um, so almost half the panel was um, people of color. And, you know, again, I don't think not even on the Negro League committee 
vote did we have about half of the uh, membership being people of color. So this, yeah, this was really interesting. Was there, you know, not that I'm, well, of course I'm trying to go negative. I'm, I'm always looking for negative, but was there ever a time? And obviously you don't got to say if there was a person who did this specifically, but where someone said, Oh, Oliva, he had his chance. No. What, 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 what changed? He hasn't gotten any hits since 1978 or whatever. I mean, does, does that kind of negative sort of comment come in? In these comment, uh, in these uh, discussions, no, that that didn't come up in, in terms of framing that way. They're on the ballot because they they deserve consideration. Um, and that was the message from the Hall of Fame. Um, we're not here to debate whether they should have been on the ballot. They're on the ballot. You have to consider th- their um, whether they get one of your four votes. And I th- and the reason I ask is not just to be an asshole, even though that's part of it. Um, it's the, there's this sense among baseball writers for the BBWA, uh, vote when guys have been on the ballot for a while and they're being considered for the second or third or, or eighth time or whatever, even though they don't all get in a room and vote, I've been party to discussions of, of voters who talk like that and say, he, 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 yeah, he didn't, too, he yeah. wasn't a hall of famer last year. He's not a hall of famer this year. Why the hell should I give him a vote? You know? And, and so I think that sort of affects a lot of people's outsiders views of the process so it sounds to me though that this was a hey this is a de novo review we are looking at these guys as if they were the first time on the ballot so many of us in the room were there for the first time as well Mm -hmm. um and so that really helps that it's not frankie fritch and the gang of 10 that like are the usual suspects in the room and then like add in two or three new voices and you know having to vote that way wow it's, it's worth going back and thinking about which uh, our first time voters period in on, on both committees it sounds like a completely fresh approach for any iteration of the veterans committee even in fairly recent years i mean mini mini minoso didn't get a hit either since the last time he was on the ballot ah but he did the negro league stats okay the negro league stats but even without the negro league stats even if you don't add those in i mean i think he still should be in right i mean and but and and but what strikes me is that, you know, a lot of debates about the Hall of Fame are about, you know, who was better, right? So it's clear that, you know, Will Clark was a better player than Gil Hodges. It's clear that Keith Hernandez, you can make this for, I mean, it's clear there's a dozen outfielders who are better than Harold Baines, right? I mean, this is not, but, but, but there is also who was important. And I'm wondering in these discussions, does, is the balance tipping more in that direction? Because as much as I make fun of him, Gil Hodges, you know, is important in baseball history in a way that like even Boog Powell, you know, even Boog Powell isn't right. Who was a very comparable player. That's why I keep coming back to him. Cause when you look at Hodges numbers, they're just not impressive for a slugging first baseman. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm an anti Gil Hodges guy or was back when I used to make arguments about this all the time, but like I've come around to this idea. Well, Gil Hodges, even if you can't quantify him as a good player or necessarily an elite manager, he was the symbol of the Mets going from a laughing stock to a champion. And that's a very important thing in baseball history. And his whole Hall of Fame argument has to hinge on that. Yeah, I mean, that this goes to the larger point of are the stories around the stats getting more consideration than maybe they once were by bringing someone like you to give it that context. There, there's this element of, you know, their performance, their integrity, their character, and contribution to the game. And that is where the contribution to the game is where context comes up a lot. Um, notion of how did this individual help an era have meaning? Um, you know, and so 
that becomes a sway factor, I think, for some, you know, that, you know, when we think about this period, um, you know, there, there was discussion of statistics and what they mean, you know, war, what is it good for? Somebody actually said absolutely nothing. Um, and, uh, and, and a couple others said, well, actually, it helps me think about who I want to hire, uh, sign as a free agent. Um, but what's its place in this particular room? That, that becomes really interesting uh, part of a conversation that we had. Um, but contribution to game was something that allows us to understand Mini Minoso and his overall story um, because he was one of those players that came out of the Negro Leagues, was an integration pioneer, and those stats of being, you know, matter differently as a black Cuban in MLB during 1950s. You know, th there weren't many of them. Um, and much even there, like, it's the fact that he was an all-star consistently at the elite level of the American League, and somehow he wasn't elected. And this kind of gets back to one of the questions that Craig asked uh, about, like, how people vote. Minnie has such a weird – thank you, Bill Vack, for giving Minnie the weirdest journey to the Hall of Fame because he kept coming off the ballot because he would, had these other appearances so that he would be a five-generation or five-decade MLB player. And the last year that Minnie Minoso's – Orestes Minoso's name was considered by the voters, by BB. W-A-A uh, was 1999, 35 years after he played his last real MLB season. It, there are other things with Minoso too, because there are these other things that happen. We talk about, are the stories more important? Are the stats more important? Um, it wasn't until really recently that people, voters, were, were looking at things. It, it's just like with the MVP or Cy Young or anything else. Wins were important. Home runs were important. People weren't looking at on base. People weren't looking at, uh, you know, various ad, more advanced metrics. And another thing with Minoso is he was like a huge Sabre candidate too because he got on base very well. He did all these things. His defense was completely underrated by by earlier, more ignorant voters. And so he emerged as a, a greater candidate simply on the numbers over time when people started to appreciate what he did. So you had the, oh, he was in the Negro League, so we're going to be racist and not vote for him. Oh, he had this weird career, and we don't know how to characterize him, so we're not going to vote for him. Oh, he didn't do these things that uh, you know the, the, the classic Hall of Famer did. So... I'm glad he had this long. I wish it didn't take this long, but it's kind of understandable in certain ways. Yeah, I wish it, it had. I wish, really wish it would have taken about seven less years. Yes. So many would have had one full year of enjoying this. And 17 or 18 less for O'Neill or whatever, too. That's, a, that's the big shame here. Part of that binder full of candidates was the statistical record that they had, including top 10 league finishes in offensive categories. And it was an it was the most amazing spreadsheet in terms of like his spread. There were so many seasons where he appeared in five or more categories in the top 10 on base percentage, stolen bases, slugging because he hit a lot of triples and he did was double digits in home runs and double digits. And, and, and like he batted 300 or higher, like 
it really did take a more sabermetric eye to appreciate that spread. We said he was a five-tool player, but most people were reading five-tool player as how many home runs, how many RBIs, and what's your batting average. All I see is batting average here. You know, and that's where um, Minnie's understanding his statistical record in that broader context was really useful. Do you think that electing Minoso to the Hall of Fame, and to a lesser extent, Tony Oliva, but but Minoso particularly, do you think that opens the door for more candidates like him who who, who are in the, that early generation of the integration of baseball and whose, and whose achievements are overlooked? So the guy that I, I look to a lot is Felipe Alou, who's kind of a, a pet candidate of mine, who I think has a, has a very good Minoso, a different kind of different, but a Minoso-like claim, especially when you look at the entire oeuvre of his work. Or do you think there's a sense now that, look, we've done this, we can go back to electing, you know, just based on numbers? The, the era committees are really designed to capture and to consider the new ways we understand baseball's past. And this gets to both what you're asking, Lincoln, and what Craig asked about like the new ways we understand performance, the literal statistical compendium that we build and try to understand their performance. But also in 2021, we have a better understanding and perhaps are more empathetic and we're perhaps sympathetic with what Minnie Minoso and Tony Oliva had to go through to compile the stats that they did as black men in MLB. I dare say that the, the majority of the BBWAA voters in the 70s who were voting initially on the candidacy of these individuals and in the early 80s, that wasn't really part of their influence um and yeah there were there are and there have been a number of candidates latino candidates who didn't and african-american candidates who did not get their rightful share of, of the uh the votes because this for too long it was your stat is your stat and we're gonna we're gonna say they're apples to apples when when at the end of the season someone like tony oliva can't go home to recuperate mentally and physically, he can't go back to Cuba. He has to make a new life and home in Minnesota. But the majority of U.S.-born players can. And it's so important to kind of be able to regroup mentally and, and, and emotionally to be ready for the next season. Tony Oliva's path was different. And for him to be consistently at 300, 300, 310, 320, um, I overheard someone saying, this guy was Tony Gwynn with power and, and people not quite understanding, you know, that because he had 13 full seasons in, in MLB. Now, another follow-up question on, on, on uh, Minoso, because he, he is to me the most interesting, whether he'd gotten in or not, the most interesting because, because of Bill Veck and because of his history and, and all of this, and also just because he was, you know, at a time, particularly in the American League, when it was kind of baseball in the American League in that period mounted to a large extent to wait for someone from the Yankees to hit a home run, he was really playing a more interesting and exciting brand of baseball. Um, and, and of course, he's not alive anymore, which is which is unfortunate that he didn't get to live to experience this. But so somebody will represent the family at the inauguration. How how do you think Cooperstown treats uh, treats Mignot? So he gets a plaque. Will there be some cell of his overall contribution kind of from the visual side? What would what would a 
Minoso fan expect to see when they go to Cooperstown in a couple of years? Do you have any sense of that at all? Well, definitely, you know, the plaque is going to be, you know, it's definitely going to have a White Sox. I don't think they're going to have a debate about what, what cap is going to go on there well, for Mr. White Sox. What's really interesting and fun about going there induction year, like after the induction throughout the year, is they do put um, a case together to kind of tell the story of that player. Um, each individual that's elected will have that case, whether it's Bud Fowler, playwright, songwriter, we now know. Um, and there's lots of really interesting stuff that have been documented about his life. Um, or Minnie, Minoso. And, um, you know, and it will say Orestes, Minnie, Minoso, I'm, I'm certain. They will have the N and not just the N um, uh, to his name in that display. And that is also part of the story about how, uh, how do we understand the story of of Latinos in baseball, of Afro-Latinos in baseball, like Monty Irvin. Playing three seasons in the Negro Leagues is different than, like, Hank Aaron played a year with the Indianapolis Clowns and was, you know, taken by the Braves. And But Minnie's three years is kind of – it literally is a bridge. And having to deal with not being – the Cleveland – Guardians now, uh, but then Cleveland Indians franchise was the most aggressive organization in the American League in acquisition of black and Latino talent and Afro-Latino talent. And that many, his seasons in San Diego looks entirely different now when we realize yeah, he was the seventh black player in MLB. Um, and he, he it wasn't because he wasn't good enough. And that's been the biggest um, important, uh, the biggest contribution or one of the biggest contributions of Negro League historians is debunking the myth that these players didn't get into MLB because they weren't good enough. You know, we cannot allow that myth to persist at all because they, it was the wall of segregation that kept them out and those who propped it up and kept it there for so many years. I wouldn't mind spending a minute going back to the gossip. <laughs> what are the things you, 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 you can tell us that we need to know? The, the most juiciest dish. No, I, well, I was, I mean, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah. Like, what did who, Ozzy who Smith did you, have for lunch? Exactly. Who did you enjoy hanging out with? Who was, you know, what was that like? Well, yeah, it was, it ended up being that Ozzy and I spent a lot of time uh, chatting. Um, you know, he, uh, He's a lot of fun to be with. Um, and, you know, he, one of our committee members was dealing with laryngitis and voice would come in and out. And it so happened that what, that person was seated next to Ozzy and he would uh, signal to Ozzy like toward his back and Ozzy would come over and hit him in the back and all of a sudden the voice reappeared. <laughs> and so there was a lot of fun where people would say, look, he's got, he's still got magical hands. Was there a moment where someone like knocked something off the table and Ozzy Smith grabbed it? <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's really interesting kind of group that's brought in. At one point, um, you know, a player um, or the a candidate was up for consideration, and this didn't happen often, but there was a question directed exactly to one specific individual and saying, 
when you think about this candidate, what's your reaction? You know, that happened only on a couple of occasions during the full day of deliberations where someone literally just turns like, you answer this question. What do you think? Um, you know, and people did give their honest assessment uh, responses. Um, you know, and that's the kind of stuff that the hall wants to make sure doesn't get out because we don't want a process where people kind of fear they're going to come get me. They're going to try to say, you know, you were the one vote that Dick Allen didn't get this time. We really do want to know who that person is. And we will get them. Don't, don't think for a moment we won't. Well, there can't be. There's more than one person that didn't vote for Dick Allen. Generations of voters who didn't vote for Dick Allen. Well, similarly, there was generations of voters who didn't vote for Gil Hodges. It just so happened on this day there were 12 that did. Gut, gut reaction. Does Dick, does Dick Allen get in through this process in the future? I think so, yes. I, I really think it helps to get four people in this. That The fact that four people got in this time clears room on this era's ballot when it comes back up two three years from now or whatever it's going to be like hey yeah. dick allen has been here why isn't he and yet he's going to be the guy that stands head and shoulders above the others yeah the case is there the, the case is there and you know he the fact that he was one short twice tells you that he has a lot of support and so one of the things that that is the challenge of the era's committees is voter spread that too many people vote for a different group of four, and then you end up with 11 and someone else with 10, four people with nine, and three candidates with eight, and nobody gets in. That's a problem. It's not like with the BBWA ballot right now. There are you know, 15, 20 guys on it, but there are four guys people are really talking about, so it's a lot easier to get sort of a consensus. I wonder if Dick Allen, who, you know, is, of course, one of these guys who, you know, hasn't gotten a hit in a long time, but th the these committees are really meant to re-examine Dick Allen because in the same way that you talk about how Tony Oliva's experience was different than, you know, another player who, who was, say, a white American dude ha being, being Cuban, being not being able to go back, it's a little bit – Dick Allen, during his playing time, I mean, certainly I remember seeing him play and enjoying seeing him play – was that he was, you know, a troublemaker, right? He was, a, a, you know, an outspoken African-American man. They didn't always use that language to describe him, but that was kind of the rap on him. And I wonder, has baseball evolved? Have the, I mean, that can't be how this committee sees him, right? And when you take that away, I think his numbers have to speak for themselves. Is that just where this is go going to inevitably move in, in your sense? I, I think that, and, and, you know, again, similarly, to the more distance we have in terms of chronological distance from his career, I think the greater sympathies people have for his um, personality, for his, um, for his, for who he was. And, and his experience, especially in Philly, that, that really only started getting reported and talked about with any kind of depth within the, like the last 10 years or so. No one in the 80s, when Dick Allen was still on the BBWA ballot, was talking about just how screwed he was by Philly's ownership. You know, again, this is where hi history, get, some of the gaps of history and reporting gets filled in and, and it gets out so that people can really consider, you know, what was happening in Philadelphia and how did that affect who Dick Allen was? And then when you, and this is often how I think about, particularly with African-American, with black Latino candidates 
and, and other Latinos that if they were going through all of this other BS and were able to perform at that level, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> it's like that that's that's pretty phenomenal stuff. And you know, oftentimes that's what sways a vote. Yeah, if there is ever a uh, a, a reworking of the whether we vote up or down on error committee uh, candidates, that will have an impact. Um, but the, the kind of the reverse tension on that is they know that will allow more candidates who are under reconsideration into the hall. Um, but the other, the, the final takeaway for me about is a point I made before. I don't know if we'll ever have a, a, a vote where it got so clustered around the top five candidates that there was such a spread in the voting um, that four people got in. Um, and yeah, Dick Allen just needed to have had one other person change her vote in the affirmative above on the top four. And we would have gotten five, which, yeah, you statisticians can tell me that, those are pretty good betting odds if you can figure that out. <laughs> Thank you, Adrian. This has really been just a fantastic insight into what goes on in those in those secret rooms and and really to how we got to an outcome, which I think many of us are very happy to, to hear. So thank you very much for sharing all of that. This has been Left of Baseball with Lincoln Mitchell, Craig Kakatera, Tova Wang, and Adrian Burgos Jr. Thank you for listening. Please rate, review us, tell a friend about us, and we look forward to seeing you next time.